As we begin a new series, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. We want to look at the first three verses this morning. It reads, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that I might be a spirit-filled teacher and that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners as we come to your word. Pray that our hearts would be molded to your will, that we would be flexible in your hands, that we would be equipped for every good work, weapons for the right hand, weapons for the left, matured, filled out to whatever you call us to. Lord, that we could stand in this day as we live in your presence and we pray without ceasing, being led by your hand because you are our shepherd who leads us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. But Lord, help us to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, speaking the truth in love, lights to this generation that we might be found faithful, that we might hear from you, well done, faithful servant. And we'll give you all the glory, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The message is entitled, God Himself. God Himself. This letter was written somewhere between 7 AD and 70 AD because we know that the missionary effort did not take place until after Antioch. And we know that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans and General Titus went in there and destroyed it when the Jews continued to rebel. This is a letter written to Jewish believers who don't live in the land of Israel. Someplace a church was planted, someplace else, possibly in Greece somewhere. We're not told where, but they have been faithful. And they are suffering ostracized by their own people, persecuted by the Gentiles. They're people that heard the gospel from someone else so they never knew Jesus personally, didn't hear his teaching, did not see his miracles. And though they never saw him, they loved him just like you and I. And some of them were being distracted and discouraged even to thinking about going back to the dead rituals and traditions which God had folded up and was about to completely erase when he destroys Jerusalem. And some were not believers at all. There's three groups here. There are Hebrew believers who are discouraged. There are Hebrew non-Christians who were intellectually convinced, maybe like some of you up here, you believe all the right stuff, but you have yet by faith to commit your life to Jesus Christ. The invitation of Jesus is, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so there were there people like that. Then also, there were Hebrew non-Christians who were not convinced. They were just kind of there. 
They needed to hear the gospel. And so the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is for sure. Some say the Apostle Paul. Some say Apollos. We're not told who it is. Writes this book to lift their heads. Now what we find in these first three verses are the truth that the writer wants to communicate in all of the book. This is the main essence of the book. Jesus Christ cannot be compared to anyone. He is the incomparable. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than the law. John wrote and he said, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And of his grace have we all received and grace upon grace upon grace. No one compares to Jesus. I think going back to the old ways would be a little like a silly illustration of a grown man driving his car down the road, holding a toy car in his hand, making car noises. Room, 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 room. Because it was dead and useless. Compared to Christ, what could old dead religion give? And yet how many Americans today and people around the world are trapped in dead ritualism, which in many ways is patterned after the dead religion that God had packed up. God gave the law to Israel. He gave all the ceremonies to bring them along because he wanted to reveal himself to them, and he started with the law. And the purpose of the law was not they could keep it and be saved, but they could see that without God, they could not be saved. The law only condemned it's only by the grace of God that it doesn't hold our sin against us. And all of the sacrifices that were done over and over every day, millions and millions every year, he's going to tell us here in Hebrews that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats can take away sin. They were only looking forward to the perfect sacrifice. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was only temporary, and we see the completion in Jesus Christ. Not only does the Holy Spirit in this book speak to Christians in order to strengthen their faith and to the intellectually convinced in order to push them over the line to saving faith, but he also speaks to those who have not believed at all to tell them there is nothing else. This is not one little option among many, as our pluralistic world wants to teach, and our culture has depreciated to that place. Oh, well, you have your religion and I have mine. Oh, no, there's only one way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Only in Christ. It's not in a church. It's only in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that everyone will give an account one day when they stand before him what they did with Jesus. God is always trying to disclose himself to us. And so we begin in the first verse. God, same place it began in the first book, in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. God never tries to prove himself. He is just an established fact. You have to teach a child to be an atheist because a child in their own innocence understands there was a creator and they were created. You see his, his message in every tribe around the world, in all their traditions. They may not know God, but there is a pattern and they're always seeking after God. 
The Bible says he has placed eternity in their hearts. God is always disclosing himself. And he said here in verse 1, he did it at different times and at different ways. Different times, he revealed himself unto the fathers, that is to godly men of the past. And sometimes he spoke by the prophets. Sometimes he displayed his Shekinah glory in the garden. God walked with Adam and Eve personally. Can you imagine? Scientists say that our skin was created, not Christian scientists, but scientists who are believers, say that our skin was created to reflect the glory of God. And we say that even based upon Moses' experience. When he came down from the mountain after being with God, his face shone. And he had to put a veil over because the people were afraid he'd been too close to God. Remember when the... When God spoke the law directly to the children of Israel. They said, Moses, you go talk to God. Tell him not to talk to us anymore because he scares us to death. And so Moses had the privilege of being called the friend of God. And he talked to God as a man talks to his friend face to face. And Moses could never get enough of God. After he got the law, he said, Lord, show me your glory. Charles Spurgeon said it was probably the greatest prayer ever prayed to God. Show me your glory. And God had to tell Moses, you can't see my face because it will kill you. The physical presence of the holy God is so powerful that a human being in our fallen state, we're going to have to have new bodies to live in his presence in heaven. Because we can't withstand that power. When Isaiah sees his glory there in Isaiah 6, after King Uzziah died, All of a sudden, he found himself in a vision of the presence of God. And he fell on his face and he said, I felt like I was a man about to be ripped apart. John has a vision in the last book of the Bible. And he sees Jesus and he he does his very best to explain what Jesus looked like. He knew Jesus. He touched him. He listened to him. He lived with him. While Jesus ministered on earth, he was one of his closest disciples. And he said, I saw his face like the sun shining in its strength. His hair was white like wool. His feet were like brass burned in a fire that were glowing. He had a name tattooed on his thigh that no one knows except for him. And when he spoke, it was like the sound of many waters, like a thundering waterfall. But so clear that I heard every single word. And we think, wow, what's that going to be like? God displayed himself in his glory, the Shekinah glory, when he led the children of Israel through the wilderness. He said, I will be a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That pillar came between the Egyptians when they were chasing them down at the edge of the Red Sea. And they they blamed Moses and they said, Moses, you brought us out here to die. No, God had brought the Egyptians out there to die. They had every opportunity. God gave those Egyptians every opportunity to listen and repent. But their Pharaoh, their leader, would not. And the next day, God opened the sea. He led them through. And about the time they got across, he lifted up his Shekinah glory that separated them from the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, without thinking, and Dr. Bookman says, it's proof that sin makes you stupid. They plunged their whole army between those walls of water. And every single one of those valiant soldiers died. It wiped out Pharaoh's army. 
We see God's Shekinah glory take residence in the tabernacle. And they can see God. And every time when, when he first took residence, the priest had to leave because his glory drove him out, drove them out. We say this, see the same thing happened when they, Solomon built the temple for God. And all of the years that the tabernacle was in residence at Shiloh, there was the Shekinah glory cloud right over the tabernacle. And yet, in ignorance and rebellion, Eli's sons take the ark out of the Holy of Holy into battle and they lose it. Now, it can't stay there long because the ark started killing off Philistines. And so they sent it back on a cart with cattle. kind of glory showed up in a burning bush to Moses. And yet even if God displays his glory in Shekinah, there's still mystery there. If you look at the Shekinah glory of God as Ezekiel experienced it there in Ezekiel chapter 1. And I think Ezekiel did as fine a job as any man could do in explaining what he saw in those creatures. They had wheels around them and wherever the creatures moved they had four faces and they had six wings they flew with two with two they covered their face with two they covered their feet and it was so fast they moved like lightning and when God spoke in that temple and there's this emerald rainbow around the throne it moved the pillars of the temple that God built and at funerals sometimes I'll read that passage and I'll say can you explain to me what's going on here because I look at it and it's just hard. I know people have tried to even draw cartoons of what they see and we have no idea. But that one that's gone to be with the Lord, they know. This last couple of years, we've had two children go be with the Lord. And those children know more about the glory of God than any theologian with any amount of degrees as soon as they entered the presence of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly but one day face to face. So God tried to display himself in Shekinah. He, he displays himself in creation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that in creation we see the glory and the power, the order of God. But unrighteous men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they worship the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. And because of that God gives them over to immoral actions, to depraved actions, and ultimately to depraved thinking. They can't think straight. That's the culture we live in. That's the culture the Hebrews lived in. And they were persecuted and discouraged. And so in order to lift their head, God says, let me give you a vision of God. And one day God comes and he sends his only begotten son into the world. He gives himself. The Bible says, John wrote in John 14, John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took up residence. Those that would be distracted, the writer of Hebrews wants to point out, this is what God promised. It's what he promised. Clear back in Genesis chapter 22, God said to Abraham, Abraham, you say you love me? Take your son, your only son, the special son that I gave the promise about. I want you to take him up to a mountain that I will show you. 
And I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. We see later in Hebrews that God gave Abraham such a faith that he knew that God was able to raise up if he needed to Isaac from the ashes. But he went in obedience. I don't think he told Sarah. I don't think he told the servants. And he didn't tell Isaac until they got there. And they get up to the mountain in verses 7 and 8. And Isaac looks around and he says, Behold, Father, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It says, You shall call his name Emmanuel. The fulfillment is in Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated means God with us. God gave us himself. God spoke. He spoke in creation. He spoke in those emanations of himself and his Shekinah glory, but then he speaks in full voice through the prophets. He gives us his word and the explanation. And yet even the prophets, there was much mystery. The prophets got a part of it. One prophet here, another prophet a little there. None of them got it all. And the Bible says about the prophets that they looked in to see who this Christ was and what was all about because they got a little bit and they couldn't quite put it all together. To Noah it was revealed that Messiah would come out of one of his sons. To Abraham, it was revealed that Messiah would come out of one of his sons. To Jacob, it was revealed that Messiah would come out of one of his sons. To David, it was revealed that Messiah would come out from one of his sons. To Micah, it was revealed the town. To Daniel, it was revealed the time. To Malachi, it was revealed the forerunner, John the Baptist. Everybody got their bits and pieces. Each knew only in part until Christ came. And he was God and whole, full of grace and truth. In Christ, the revelation of God is complete. He comes himself. The shadows are replaced by substance, and so Christ comes as the fullness of God. That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God are in Christ. Yes and amen. Everything resolves in him. It says there in verse 2, in these last days he has spoken in his sonness. Not just the word his is not there, not in his son, but in his sonness. He sent his only begotten son. The same essence, the same personhood. There's one God, three persons. The second person of the Godhead came to earth, took upon him flesh. And now God shouts through his son. You can't mistake it. It's unmistakable. He is God, and you all see the, the, we all see the glory of God manifesting in him. His judgment, his justice, his love, his wisdom, his power, his omniscience. It's all out of him as we watch him walk through the world, working his work, living his life. The fullness of God is seen, and it was never seen before like it was in Jesus Verse 2 says, in these last days, the last time, the end of the age began when Jesus came. It was prophesied by Daniel. That would be the last days. We're still living in those last days because Jesus Christ was given to us. So we understand that's when those last days started. So after God had given the whisper 
And then he gave the audible voice. He shouted in his son, and the New Testament gives us that revelation. What was a mystery before is now made clear in Jesus Christ. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the priests. He's greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than Melchizedek, on and on. His covenant is a greater covenant. And so he speaks by his sonness. He speaks in the living son. Then it talks about his essence. Who being the brightness of his glory. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the glory of the Lord. He's the brightness of God. What is glory? In Isaiah 40, verse 5, these are words we toss around as believers. You know, I just want to live for God's glory. I just want to bring glory to God. And sometimes maybe the preacher's shouting, you're in the south, and you say glory. What is glory? Isaiah 40, verse 5 says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What does that mean? The glory of the Lord is the expression of God's person. It is any manifestation of God's character. So we see it in creation. We see it in those Shekinah glory. We see it in his word. Any manifestation of his attributes in the world, in the universe, is his glory. In other words, glory is to God what the brightness is to the sun. Glory is to God what wet is to water. Glory is what heat is to fire. In other words, it is the emanation, the effulgence. It is the brightness. It is the product of his presence. It is the revelation of himself. Anytime God discloses himself is the manifestation of his glory. It refers to his presence. The phrase, the brightness of his glory is very simple. It means radiance. It means to send forth light. It is simply saying that he is the shining forth of God. Just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth to light us, to warm us, to give us life and growth, so Christ, in Christ we see the scent and warmth and radiance of the glorious light of God touching the hearts of men. And so Christ is God. He is the glory of God who shouts the reality of God, which is only a whisper and spoken, whisper spoken in times past. We see that amazing illustration in Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 8, at toward the end of his ministry in order to lift the hearts of his disciples because they were being kind of dragged down. They were not believing. They didn't understand that he was going to be crucified. He's going to be dying by the hands of leadership. He told them. And so he brings Peter, James, and John to a mountain. And there it's revealed his glory. We sing the old song, uh, Christmas carol, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead see, see the eternal deity. And so what we see is the, the veil of his flesh was pulled back. And the Bible says there in Matthew 17 that it's, it's shown in all of its brightness. His, his face shone like the sun like we see in Revelation chapter 1. And he there is talking with Moses, the great leader of the people, and Elijah, the great prophet. And what were they speaking about? They were talking about his coming sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection, the things that they had been looking to understand. And Peter, when he got his voice, said, you know, we need, what we need here is we need to build three tents, one to Jesus, one to Elijah, and one to Moses. And a voice came from heaven, the father speaking, he said, hey, this is my son, you listen to him. There's no comparison to the incomparable Christ 
Every time Jesus performed a miracle, every time he healed a lame man or gave sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf or voice to the dumb, every time he forgave sin, God was revealing his glory. Verse 3 also says he was the express image of his person. We have a word character in the Greek is character. It's almost the same thing. It is basically a classical Greek word, and it means an engraving tool, a die or a stamp, a mold or a mark that is made by a seal. It has the idea of a copy, image, or reproduction. He's saying that Christ is the exact image of God. He is God, very God. Then the writer goes on to give us the excellencies of Christ. Number one, it says in verse 2 that he has appointed him to be heir of the whole world. Now, in these last few days, last few weeks, we've gotten very familiar with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 starts out, he says, why are the enemies of God raging and the, and the kings of the earth gathering together saying, let's cast his shackles from us? We sang about God's protection in our life in one of these songs this morning. How we look at God's protection as his love and they see God's protection and his laws as something holding them back from something they want. And they say, no, we're going we're gonna to cast off God's shackles. We're not going to have this man rule over us. And God gets so worried and he takes that so seriously. He begins to worry us as they're in Psalm 2 and say, oh, what am I going to do? Right? No, no, no. That's not what it says. God sees from the heavens and he says... God laughs. He holds them in derision. He says, you know what I've done? I've set my son on the holy hill. I've made him king. And one day you will bow to him or he will shatter you like an earthen vessel. He said, kings of the earth, you better submit to his rulership. You better kiss the son lest he become angry and you will perish in the way. God's not worried. We can get distracted like Peter by the waves that are always being cast up like mire and dirt like the wicked around us, but we don't have to be worried. Remember, Peter got out of the boat. Jesus came walking on the water, and we give Peter a hard time because he didn't keep his eyes on the Lord, but he's the only one that got out of the boat. And they thought Jesus was a, was a ghost, and they cried out, and he said, hey, don't be afraid. It's just me. And Peter said, if it's really you, then you can invite us to come out on the water. He said, come on, Peter. Peter stepped out on the water and began to walk on the water. He actually walked on the water. And then he got his eyes off of the Lord and began to look at the waves. That's what this passage is about. That's what this whole book is about. You're going to hear it over and over. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Don't worry about the, the, the waves around you and what the wicked are saying. Just keep our eyes on the king. He's the inheritor. He has the right to rule. And one day he will decide what he does with his inheritance. It will be put in the right place. Remember there in Revelation chapter 5, we have that picture, the throne room of God. I call it the stadium of worship. And all the saints of all the ages are gathered there. And it's about to claim back the earth. And so a scroll is there, the seven seals on the scroll. It is the title deed to the earth. And all the things that have to take place so the earth can be transferred back to its rightful owner. And someone worthy has to be found to open the seals. Who is worthy? And they begin to make a search in heaven and all around in the air and the, the sea. And no one is found. And John begins to weep. 
thinking the rightful owner will never take over and we will continue to have this turmoil, this sin, and this devastation, disease, destruction for all eternity. And the elder says to John, hey, John, stop crying. Because he was crying greatly. His heart was breaking. And he said, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. And all of a sudden, John lifts his eyes and he sees one as a lamb freshly slain. And all the elders and all those worshiping fall down. And they cry out together, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Why? Because he has won to himself some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group on the earth. He is worthy because he paid the price to redeem the earth back to himself. And if you're here this morning and you say, well, I reject God. I think I'll think about it. If you die in your sin one day, Jesus will say to you, because he owns you, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. The Bible says just before that in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, those under the earth, those in the earth, those that have died of wickedness, those that rejected God will confess that Jesus Christ is the, is the one. They will confess him as Lord. Then he will say to them in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. You're not part of me, you're not part of this. It's because he's the inheritor. He's the one that has the right to determine. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Secondly, it says he's the creator by whom also he made the worlds. Not only will he receive it in the end and determine their end, but he's the source of its origination. He initiated it all. Now, the word here is not the word for worlds like cosmos. It's more than that. It's, it's ions. It means ages. It's not just that he created the physical words, worlds and the physical things that exist in the universe. It is that he created the concepts in which the physical things can exist. It takes you one step beyond the physical he created time and space, force, energy, and matter. He created the stuff of which the physical creation is made. He made it all. So we see it as a inheritance that he made it. And he is the owner, the rightful owner. And he even paid to redeem it back to himself. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, we will get there, verse 4. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. All of its systems it's intricate things that have to be held together were created and he spoke them into existence. Verse 3, it says, they exist by his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's his influence. He holds the whole thing together. Why don't atoms just fall, fly apart and fission takes place and we just melt? Because God holds them together. He is holding them together together. It's continuous action. Just a few facts. Do you know that our globe is tilted at exactly 23 degrees? If it wasn't at that exact angle, vapors from the ocean would move north and south and pile up massive continents of ice. Do you know that if the moon did not remain at its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land twice every day? Do you know that if the ocean slipped to just a couple feet Deeper, further than it is, carbon dioxide and oxygen in the earth's atmosphere would be completely absorbed and no vegetable life could exist. Do you know that if the atmosphere didn't remain constant in the earth, 
but it thinned out millions of meteors, which are harmlessly burned up in space, would pummel the earth in a barrage of bombardment that would devastate us all. Who holds the delicate balance? Who keeps it all working? The sun does. This fall, do you know why the leaves turn? You say, well, it gets cold. No, the leaves turn because our orbit is an ellipse. It's not a circle. And it hits that ellipse, and the leaves turn. And while the silly, foolish sinners run around worried about something they don't have to be worried about, global warming. Oh, the global's going to warm up one day. The Bible promises that. It's going to warm up, and no one will survive. It says one day it's going to pass away with great heat and a loud noise. That's the big bang theory. It comes at the end, not at the beginning. But they act like they can control the weather. We need to control the weather better. Listen, every time there's a rainbow, there's two promises there in that rainbow. This is interesting when you have certain groups claim the rainbow as their symbol. There's the promise that God will never destroy the earth again with a flood. But in that promise is also one day he's going to destroy this earth with fire and nothing will survive except those that have chosen to follow him. He is the creator of the universe, of the ages, of all concepts and bonds, bounds of existence. And listen to this. He will bring all things to their conclusion. That's why I can say to you as a believer, in your discouragement, in your trial, even in your sin, faithful is he that calls who will also bring it to pass. He's just not done with you yet. And he is faithful. He will do it. You can trust him to lead you. He's our shepherd, Psalm 23, that leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And then we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All this in heaven too. But this is our opportunity to demonstrate faith and trust in this one and only Jesus Christ, he will bring all things to the conclusion. Fourthly, we see his sacrifice in verse 3. When he had by himself, by himself purged our sins. You have to know that. He did it by himself. That's what he was fearing. The only thing that Jesus ever feared was the unknown of what it was going to be like to be separated from the Father. And as the sin of all time was laid upon him, think about that. All the devastation of all the sinners was laid upon him. The stress was so great, it sweat as it were, great drops of blood. And he pled with the Father, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't talking about the crucifixion and the nails. That was horrible. That was terrible. But about that moment that was coming, when by himself he put away sin, when the father turned his back on the son because my sin and your sin was laid upon him. And for just that moment, the Shekinah went dark. And by himself, the Savior hung there for you and for me. All by himself. What a verse. By himself. Now, we think about our sin and we depreciate our sin. Well, it's not that bad because we like to find somebody that's greater. But listen. He died for you. 
if you were the only one that would ever have trusted him, he died for you by himself. What a savior. When you think, just take a moment, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible when you think of all the devastation that we as sinners have caused. Stalin caused the death of millions of his own people. Hitler caused the death of millions of Jews and his own people. And in America, our culture has caused the death of millions and millions and millions of innocent babies. Oh, there's blood on our hands. But know this. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And when Jesus cried out at the end of that darkness, he said, it is finished. And you know what happened then? The veil was rent in the temple from the top to the bottom, and a way was made so that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he said, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need because Jesus put sin away. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor anymore. You can go directly to the throne of grace, and that's where you can find help for your own salvation. You just go to him personally. I can't give it to you. Nobody else can give it to you. The Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, not because your parents or some relative was a Christian, nor by the will of the flesh. You just didn't decide one day you were going to trust God. God prepared your heart to receive and to get that hope. He's the one that turned the switch on. Just like he said in creation, let there be light. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he's the one that shone the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ in your heart. He turned the switch on and you woke up. I, I just loved Eve's testimony at baptism a couple weeks ago. She said so many, her professor Mike had ministered patiently the gospel to her and so many people in our church. And one day, I just woke up and I believed it. How did that happen? That was the Spirit of God. That said all of a sudden, oh yeah, that makes sense. He turned the light on in every one of our lives. He finished the work of salvation and then he sat down. You see what's so amazing about that is there are no seats in the temple or in the tabernacle because the work of the priest was never done. It was never done, never done, never done. The millions and millions and millions of sacrifices because there's always sin and there's always more sin. But Jesus put away sin and after he sacrificed once, he sat down. Why did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's the place of honor. And he is worthy to be praised. But know this, his ministry for us is not complete because the Bible says he ever pleads for us. You see John 1.9, it says we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. So what's the first mark of a believer? We're not like Pharisees running around broadening our garments, covering up our sin, justifying ourselves, comparing ourselves among ourselves. We can be transparent because our righteousness is not a righteousness that divides from ourself, but it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers us. The Bible says he has made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's his record on us, not ours. But 1 John 2 goes on to say, little children, I write these things 
that you sin not. When you realize what an amazing opportunity that we just ask, we just identify with a sin, that's what confession is. Saying, God, that's sin. I recognize that sin. And the Bible says as soon as you recognize it, God cleanses you. And it's his job to sanctify you. That's what he's trying to do. If you just yield to him, he will sanctify you so he can use you for more things for his glory. But the next chapter says, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But remember this. If any man sin, you have an attorney. You have an advocate. Jesus Christ that says, Father, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He sits there in the place of honor. He sits in the place of advocacy because he loves us. And as we behold him, as we look in the scriptures at him, we gaze on him, we are changed in the same image from one level of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so the writer of Hebrews says again, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lift your heads to what the king of kings is doing. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing around you. Don't be discouraged. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But he gives these warnings, and a lot of people get confused about these warnings in the book of Hebrews. And you say, well, well, Pastor, I thought the Bible taught we don't lose our salvation. We don't. But it says, you know, of these warnings, it says, don't drift from the word in chapter 2. Don't doubt the word in chapter 3, which is a hard heart. Don't be dull toward the word. That's sluggishness. Don't despise the word. That's willfulness. And don't defy the word. That is refusing to hear it. That's hardness of heart. What about those warnings? Let me put it to you like this. Real Christians heed the warnings of God when they see it in Scripture. Unbelievers don't. So if there were those people that had intellectually maybe uh, having come and giving mental assent to the gospel but never have trusted their life, they're going to lose it because they never had it. But a believer comes to these warnings and says, you know what, I'm slipping. I'm drifting. I think I'm taking the word of God for granted. I think maybe my heart's getting hard. We listen to those warnings and we respond by confessing our sin and confessing our need. And the Bible says he is faithful to restore us to fellowship. What does God do while this spiritual retreat is going on? He keeps speaking to us, doesn't he? He loves us. He never stops. He brings trials into our life. He brings discipline to our lives. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, every son he receives, he disciplines. And no discipline for the moment seems joyous. It doesn't feel good. You know, my dad used to tell me, this is going to hurt me more than hurts you. That's not the truth. Otherwise, he could have just given himself a spank, and I would have been happy with that. <laughs> I know what he meant by that. I think it's a nice thing to say, but it actually hurt me more than it hurt him, which caused me to listen to my father. It got a little bit older. All my dad had to do was snap his fingers and point, and my chill went up my spine. I'd hear other kids talking back to their parents, and I'd get afraid. Like the thunder of God was going to come down. Whoa, man, you're going to die. Don't talk to your dad like that. That's why God gave us dads. And the Bible says that in Hebrews 12. He gave us fathers that discipline us so that we'd have some character. We'd know right from wrong. And know this, sometimes dads do things just because... 
we're kind of getting in the way. Maybe we're losing their tools or something. But God always does it for our benefit and his glory. And no discipline for the moment seems joyous. It's painful. But when it's complete, it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He disciplines his children because he wants us close. He wants us to be able to hear from him, well done, faithful servant. But if we won't listen, and someone's there and they don't know him and they keep on going, there's nothing else God is going to do because he's already given the very best himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 9, 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed to men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly, eagerly wait for him. There's, there's, there's the decision. Will you submit to him who has given himself for us? Or will you go your own way? You can see it in fruit. Now, we can't tell hearts. We know we can't tell hearts. What is your passion for God? Is it get all you can? Are you convinced that you can bless yourself better? Or is he your shepherd who protects you, who leads you, provides for you? Even though... You're in the presence of your enemies. He sets before you a banquet table, and one day he's going to take you home, one day, face to face. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, use your word to lift our heads, that we not be discouraged or distracted by the trials, by the perilous times we live in. But, Lord, we would only talk to the king, that we would fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. And then, Lord, we ask that you would direct our, our path, lead us gently and carefully and clearly that we might walk faithfully. Lord, you have given the gospel in our hands. Lord, help us to understand the gospel and speak it clearly to those that are lost around us that we might be salt and light, that you might use us to create thirst for the water of the word and light so that people can come out of the shadows. And find life in you. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus name. Amen.